Hello and welcome to Healthcare on the Rocks, Employee Benefits with a Twist, where we talk with experts and leaders in benefits management and health data analytics. I'm Jennifer Jones, Population Health Practice Leader at Springbuck. Today we're recording a special episode discussing the Consolidated Appropriations Act. And because this is such an important topic, I have two guests joining me today. We gave my co-host Mike Pattengale a pass on this topic today, but don't worry, you'll be hearing from him again on our next episode. But today in his place, I'm joined by my colleague, Nicole Bellis, VP of Product at Springbuck. Nicole, welcome. Thank you, Jen. I'm Nicole Bellis, and we are very excited to be speaking with Shannon Kokulka, an employee benefits attorney at Waller, about the Consolidated Appropriations Act. Shannon has prior experience as an in-house counsel for a Fortune 500 company, and we're thrilled to have her here today to share her legal knowledge and practical advice on how employers can navigate the CAA. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to be here. We are excited to have you. Nicole mentioned a little bit about your background, Shannon, but would you mind telling us a little bit more about how you work with self-funded employers? I advise clients in really all areas of employee benefits, including health and welfare plans and the regulatory frameworks and compliance requirements that are imposed on those plans. Many of the plan sponsors I work with sponsor self-funded plans, particularly in light of the rising rates on traditional health insurance. They're finding themselves trying to navigate an increasingly complex labyrinth of laws, including the provisions in the Consolidated Appropriations Act. Thank you, Shannon. Yes, and in December of 2020, the Consolidated Appropriations Act of 2021 was signed into law, including many provisions that impact employer-sponsored health plans. The CAA mandated a new set of requirements for pharmacy reporting, mental health parity compliance, consumer price transparency, balanced billing practices, and requirements related to contracts between employers, their health plans, and their broker and consultant partners. This must feel very daunting for even the most seasoned HR professional. Yes. While HR professionals really have been grappling with various legal and regulatory frameworks for many years now, Demands on them from all sides do seem to be more complex now than ever. The backdrop for all this is the Employee Retirement Income Security Act, ERISA, which requires that benefit plans be maintained and administered in the best interests of all participants and beneficiaries and for the sole purpose of providing benefits and paying reasonable plan administration expenses. Fiduciaries are required to act prudently, follow the plan terms, and avoid conflicts of interest, and fiduciary responsibilities are among the highest imposed under the law. These principles have really been the North Star for plan sponsors for over 40 years, and now those foundational obligations are becoming more and more layered with the additional mandates and potential additional penalties under CAA. Well, as Nicole mentioned, this is incredibly overwhelming, I think, not only for HR professionals, but for those of us that are kind of on the fringe that are looking to help a lot of our clients and employers as well. And there's just so much to cover in the CAA. Um, So let's start by taking it really one provision at a time and start with the gag rule. So CAA gag rule amends ERISA 
the Public Health Service Act and the Internal Revenue Code to ban clauses and contracts between providers and plans that restrict access to specific cost or quality of care information or that interfere with the plan's sponsor's access to de-identified claims data. The law also requires that group health plans and insurers attest to the compliance of these quote-unquote gag rules requirements by the end of 2022, and that's a key date to remember, and then annually thereafter. So what actions can employers take now? And I have to give credit to you all for helping me with <laughs> scripting that long explanation question because I am way out of my realm. So Shannon, you take it away. <laughs> well, this is a really good time for employers to sort of st- take stock of their compliance positioning and really leverage their partnerships with trusted advisors. They should pull those services agreements off the shelf with their third-party service providers and look at the terms and confirm compliance and ongoing data access consistent with the obligations they have under other laws like the Health Insurance Portability and Accountability Act or HIPAA. Employers should work to confirm whether their TPAs or or carriers will provide the forms they need and the information that they need for making those required CAA attestations that are so important. And fiduciaries should also ensure that their policies for record retention reflect both the requirements under ERISA and current best practices. And this is an area where sometimes those policies can get stale, just like any other policy. You know, remember that fiduciary status comes from the role that one plays rather than a formal title. And it can be quite far-reaching. So this is a good opportunity to take stock of those roles and responsibilities generally with eyes wide open. Yeah, all great recommendations. And there's been a tremendous amount of coverage on the transparency regulations, particularly the requirement to make machine-readable digital information on pricing publicly available. So can you talk to us a little bit about that component? Sure. CAA requires large amounts of data on health charges to be made publicly available. Group health plans must post, quote, machine-readable information, really means digital information, to a public website about in-network rates, out-of-network allowed amounts, billed charges, prescription drug negotiated rates, and historical prices. So this is a visibility into pricing methodologies that has not typically been widely available previously. Plans have to take that information that's required and update it in this phase one of transparency on a monthly basis. And to prepare for this, you know, employers have to, again, work with carriers, TPAs, PBMs to determine how that required information is going to be provided. You know, will machine-readable files be provided through the carrier's website? Will they be provided through the TBA's website, for example? You know, how will the pricing information be updated as required under the CAA? If you have a self-funded plan, you should really determine how those machine-readable files will be made available on the plan sponsor's own public sites, or you might even consider whether and how you could use a TPA-created site to provide that pricing information. And, of course, there's security considerations involved with that approach and any approach, frankly. 
phase one is really just the beginning. Companies need to prepare for expanded pricing transparency requirements that will become effective in phase two in 2023. And that will require a transparency tool with searchable information on 500 specific services. And then phase three in 2024, the gift that keeps on giving, (laughs) which will extend phase two to pricing information on all the covered services under a plan. It's a lot. That is a lot. Um, and I know, Nicole, we have a, several questions for you as far as you know, Springbucks initiatives behind uh, how we can help our employers, too. But a couple more questions for Shannon here. As we think about, you know, many of the CAA regulations do have those complex reporting requirements, including the new reporting related to prescription drug costs. Initially, this reporting was due in December. But how are employers navigating this area around CAA and, and are the PBMs engaged in this process at all? Unfortunately, employers do not have good roadmaps available to them right now for navigating CAA reporting requirements on the whole. You know, the law requires the plans to report total spend on healthcare services and prescription drug costs that are itemized into specific categories and types and stratified in different ways. This reporting should also include the impact from rebates and fees on premiums, those rebates and fees that are paid by drug manufacturers to the plan or the service providers. Again, a lot of data required here. Mm -hmm. Um, Fully insured group health plans should confirm that their carriers or their PBMs are completing these reports for a timely submission. So Jen, as you mentioned, that communication with the PBMs and carriers and TPAs is ultimately very important. Employers with self-funded plans should work with TPAs and PBMs to confirm the scope of the data reporting. As we mentioned, there are kind of tranches and levels of reporting required and the capabilities that all those parties um, can provide, the support that they can provide in fulfilling those requirements. And as you indicated, that deadline is fast approaching. Mm -hmm. Plans must submit those initial reports about the 2020 and 2021 pharmacy benefits and drug costs to HHS, Labor, and Treasury called the tri-agencies by December 27th of this year, and then annually thereafter, no later than June 1st of each year. really is the gift that keeps on giving. (laughs) Um, And we know many pieces of legislation introduce new acronyms into the healthcare industry, and CAA certainly does not disappoint in that category either. I think my favorite, NQTL, uh, which comes from the mental health parity component of CAA. Uh, Can you speak to more about the NQTLs? Um, Still doesn't quite roll off my tongue yet, um, but why they are important. Yes, NQTL, four-letter word. (laughs) But first, we'll start with the Mental Health Parity and Addiction Equity Act. Some say MAPIA. Well, of course. Doesn't really roll. (laughs) That's not very elegant either. But (laughs) this act mandates that if a group health plan covers mental health or substance abuse and addiction benefits, in addition to medical and surgical benefits, parity is required with respect to treatment limitations that would apply to the different types of benefits. And the CAA adds two new requirements to those existing MAPIA obligations. One is conducting a comparative analysis of what are called non-quantitative treatment limitations, those NQTLs that we love, and two, a duty to disclose this analysis upon request to those tri-agencies I mentioned. So 
if the Secretaries of Labor, HHS, and Treasury find that a plan does not comply with MAPIA, the plan must implement prescriptive corrective action within 45 days or notify plan participants of non-compliance, which is not typically a good employee relations move. <laughs> mm-hmm. And that 45-day time frame, that's not a lot of runway, obviously, to fix mm-hmm. non-compliance issues at this point and then provide that notice. So employer-sponsoring fully insured group health plans should go ahead now and request information confirming that their carrier's plan designs and processes do comply with these parity requirements. And employers with self-funded plans should request more information about the specific support that is available from their TPAs and their advisors in helping them to satisfy MAPIA requirements and perform these non-quantitative analyses, which can be pretty tricky. And all plan sponsors should go ahead and request from carriers or TPAs the process document that's meant to respond to those inquiries from the agencies, those requests from the agencies under Section 203 of the CAA related to these NQTLs and the required comparative analysis so that they can gauge their own preparedness and just see how ready they are to react. You're preparing for your number to come up as a plan sponsor in this context is really important in light of the tight time constraints for correction. You know, from my perspective, the No Surprises Act component of CAA has gotten more national news coverage than any other part of the legislation. I think this is due to the direct-to-consumer impact, mm-hmm. you know, trying to reduce those bills that a consumer was not expecting, nor could maybe even not afford. Um, it was covered on CNN in December, and it's easy to understand the consumer element here, but how does this impact employer group health plans? I agree with your point, Nicole, that this piece of the legislation seems to have gotten a lot of buzz. Um, The No Surprises Act aims to address that perceived persistent problem of what's called balance billing of patients who receive emergency medical care and related services at an out-of-network facility, and then they're later surprised by the hefty bill. Providers must work under CAA with group health plans or insurers to determine the appropriate amount owed under that CAA methodology. And if the participants can't reach an agreement on the final payment beyond that allowable patient cost-sharing threshold for that care that's out of network, then the CAA requires the parties to follow the federal arbitration process, which is very regimented. Employers should go ahead and take action now to work with their advisors and review their plan documents, pull those off the shelf as well, and determine whether any revision might be necessary to reflect these new requirements. They should also check in with carriers and third-party administrators to verify those processes are in place and being followed and that they're compliant. So much to take stock of here. Um, and I think the last thing you know we'd like to cover is the compensation disclosures component of CAA. And this regulation seems to offer additional protection for ERISA-sponsored plans and is consistent with the fiduciary obligation to ensure that they are run in the best interest of participants and for the sole purpose of providing benefits and payers the benefit plan expenses by making covered service providers more transparent regarding the services that they provide. 
What would you say to that, Shannon? You know, the CAA does create new requirements for brokers and consultants who contract with a group health plan and reasonably expect to receive compensation that's either direct or indirect compensation greater than $1,000, making them covered service providers or CSPs. That threshold is low enough to impact quite a few service providers, as you can imagine, particularly with inflation these days. <laughs> You know, a CSP is required to make certain disclosures to the plan fiduciary, including describing the provided services, the expected compensation to be paid, so that the fiduciary can then fulfill their own obligations and determine whether those arrangements and fees are reasonable under ERISA. If a fiduciary doesn't request those disclosures or the CSP just doesn't provide them, the contract could violate ERISA's prohibited transaction provisions and then subject the parties to potential significant penalties. So it's a dangerous landscape. And keep in mind that plan fiduciaries must obtain the required information from CSPs before they enter into or renew a contract for services with brokers or consultants. Employers and plan sponsors should then confirm that they understand and they can determine whether the compensation paid to CSPs is reasonable. And employers and plan sponsors should probably consider updating the training they make available to fiduciaries in the ordinary course. This is a sort of plan hygiene plan administration governance point. Um, Fiduciary training should be provided from time to time. And these employers and plan sponsors should check in on the process that they follow for determining whether those plan services and fees are reasonable. There should generally be a consistency of process here. Excellent next steps and and ideas as far as for employers to follow and and think about just their kind of general checks and balances with this legislation. Um, Nicole, I know I had teased out earlier as far as we were going to come back to you as far as how Springbuck is helping our clients. Um, So I think this podcast in general will have so much content um, and provide so much additional detail to help explain the CAA and all these key dates for people to remember. But what else are we doing uh, to really help our customers understand CAA? Yeah, great question, Jen. I'm always delighted to talk about how Springbuck is helping its customers. We've actually been tracking CAA and its impact on our customers for quite some time. Um, We offered our perspective on the legislation in a blog post earlier this year. And since then, we've been supporting our customers through um, active discussions, consultation, and providing um, them with data-driven decision-making. We've also been providing data and analytics support as our customers work with their third-party administrators, their health plans, and PBM partners to navigate CAA compliance as it evolves. And speaking of evolution, Shannon, I know the Department of Labor is expected to provide additional guidance any day now. What might employers expect to hear The question for many employers now is, what's next? According to the CAA, clarifying guidance should be finalized by June 27th of this year. At this point, we are quickly approaching that deadline. So rather than the formal rulemaking process, which tends to take quite a while, this might come in the form of a proposed clarifying rule or the agencies may just miss the statutory deadline, which unfortunately is not unheard of. I'm but 
<laughs> government. <laughs> but the departments of HHS and Labor have communicated that proposed rulemaking under MAPIA is planned for July of this year. So we know the agencies have at least acknowledged that plans, plan sponsors, and issuers all need greater clarity on managing compliance with the CAA going forward. So we are watching and waiting. And, and one follow-up to that, then, do you think that there is a complete disconnect as far as what that the triad that you mentioned and what data employers actually have access to. So knowing that, you know, there's this clarification that's coming out at the end of July, but this first round of reporting is expected to be delivered, you know, back in, de- in December. Do, do they honestly think that all of this data is available to employers right now to where it's just like the click a button and all that reporting just happens? <laughs> It may be more like horseshoes, where we're going to get as close as we can in the beginning. Um, It does harken back a bit to the Affordable Care Act when there was this sort of unprecedented information sharing among all these different agencies, even among the federal and state levels. And so it was, in the beginning, pretty clunky. Some might say it still is, um, but there are definitely processes and regiments in place now, and that information sharing has largely worked. Um, And so it will probably follow a similar path. These types of regulatory frameworks are somewhat aspirational in the beginning. Um, We know that there has been some trial and error with reporting so far, and we know that the tri-agencies have said that the employers uh, reporting thus far are missing the mark. And so at least what that's done is shed a little light on the guidance that all these players need in order to fulfill those obligations under CAA and frankly all the other network of laws that they're navigating day in, day out. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's so interesting. And Nicole, you know, another question for you as far as how CAA has impacted the work that your product teams deliver to Springbuck customers. Yeah, absolutely. It kind of goes back to what you were just mentioning. Like the very first task is getting this data And it's an overwhelmingly amount of data that not everyone has access to today. So we're trying to target the areas of CAA where we think we and with our employer and uh, broker partners can directly make an impact. So, for instance, we see the gag rule as tremendously positive for our employers. They now can get the access to that historical claims data that sometimes in the past has been hard to get and keep as you um, often move vendor partners um, over the years. So we're also working hard to acquire more data from those vendor partners, continuously evolving the types of data that we ingest and enrich in our platform. And then some specific examples include, you know, getting those elusive rebates on pharmacy claims or getting more robust provider information, fixed cost data, uh, such as the administrative cost for wellness and digital health programs, budget data and premium data. So really trying to enhance the data that's in our platform to drive those insights and analytics. Yeah, and, and so much value to all of that data outside of the CAA. So maybe that's the, the silver lining to this type of legislation. Um, Shannon, any last insight you would like to give our listeners before we wrap up today? I think it's worth noting that 
President Biden's recently released fiscal year 2023 budget includes new funding and drastically increased funding for heightened CAA enforcement in many of the areas that we discussed today. So some commentators also see the CAA as yet another mechanism for enforcing existing regulatory frameworks, including other requirements related to mental health parity, for example. It's essentially become a bit of a minefield, and employers, plan sponsors, benefits council, carriers, trusted advisors, we all need to work together to help fulfill those increased and continuing compliance obligations under CAA. And the one thing we haven't talked about, uh, if I can ask you as far as if there's been any discussion around penalties as far as not meeting these deadlines or um, you know, to your point, as far as those that have submitted to this date, and it's, it's looking like they don't have everything they need in there. Thus far, it's unclear what the specific penalties would be on these particular violations of CAA. We know that they dovetail with so many other requirements under which there are penalties, which goes back to my earlier point of Many commentators see this as an opportunity for regulators to come in and audit on other issues that are raised through the CAA reporting requirements. And so my mentioning it's a minefield, I, you know, mm-hmm. trying not to exaggerate, I do think that there are tripwires, you know, all over the place mm-hmm. um, because once they're in your offices, once they're, you know, in the door and they're asking questions and auditing plans, really anything is fair game at that point. Well, Shannon and Nicole, thank you so much for joining us today. This has been incredibly insightful, very educational. Hopefully you all have picked up on a couple new acronyms. Lapia, I think is my favorite. (laughs) It copies my favorite word on a So I'm in sync with that one. Um, But really, both of you, thank you so much for sharing all of your knowledge on this topic. It's been a pleasure having you here today. Thank you. And with that, we thank you all for listening to this special episode of Healthcare on the Rocks, Employee Benefits with a Twist. Please take a moment to rate us or leave us a review on your favorite podcast platform. You'll be helping other people find the show and letting us know what you enjoy. Until next time, cheers. Cheers.